What is up, Ewu crew? Today, we are going to be covering five horrifying cold cases that differ tremendously, yet they all have one vital thing in common. They were all officially solved in 2020. Let's get into it. The first cold case we have in store for you today is that of Colorado Springs' Jennifer Watkins. In late October of 1999, 23-year-old Jennifer Watkins was elated to take up a new position as a dietary aide at Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs. At the time, Jennifer and her husband, Michael, had been wrapped up in taking care of their young children while still trying to make ends meet financially. So when Jennifer was offered a new position at Memorial Hospital, she was relieved as it meant that everything in her life appeared to be lining up nicely. But, as per most things in life, some things are just too good to be true. Only two weeks after being hired as a dietary aide, something peculiar happened. On the evening of November 6, 1999, Jennifer's husband received a call from their children's school claiming that Jennifer had never stopped by to pick up their kids after classes let out. A chill went down Michael's spine as he realized immediately that something had to be terribly wrong. Jennifer was known by her friends and family alike for her punctuality, and she would never have left their kids. Jennifer's husband quickly collected his children from the school before returning home hoping to find Jennifer waiting for him. Unfortunately, Jennifer was nowhere to be found. Later that evening, Michael contacted Colorado Springs Police Department to report his wife was missing. Something inside of Michael told him that Jennifer would never just abandon her children and that something had to have happened to her. Authorities understood the concerns of Jennifer's family. However, they weren't as alarmed as Michael and were tempted to classify Jennifer's disappearance as a runaway. That is, until authorities were notified that a body was found under a stairwell in an area of the hospital that had long been under construction. Detectives had actually been conducting interviews at Memorial Hospital regarding Jennifer's sudden disappearance when the news broke of a discovery of a woman's body that had been half-heartedly hidden just out of sight. Two local elevator service employees had accidentally come across a rather foul and distinctive smell while inspecting an elevator shaft that needed repairing. The smell had led to a body carefully wrapped in plastic and bound with duct tape. Shortly after the body was reported, Investigators from the CSPD Homicide Unit, Metro Crime Lab, and the El Paso County Coroner's Office were dispatched to the scene. Upon arrival, investigators approached the body that would later be identified as Jennifer Watkins. Jennifer's clothes had been strewn about the stairwell, indicating that some kind of struggle had taken place. After further investigation into what had actually happened to Jennifer, the El Paso County Coroner's Office claimed that she had been assaulted and her cause of death had been a result of, quote, blunt force trauma to the head. Jennifer's death was then ruled a homicide 
after investigators found hairs, fibers, and semen residue on the plastic that had been used to bind Jennifer's body before its discovery. Officials on Jennifer Watkins' case managed to develop two DNA profiles from the evidence found at the scene of the crime. Soon, investigators were conducting a variety of interviews that involved biological samples being taken from suspects to compare to the DNA profile. Yet, no matter how many potential suspects were looked into, it seemed as though Jennifer's killer managed to slip through the cracks. And then, her case went cold. Over the past 21 years, all potential leads into Jennifer's murder appeared to result in nothing but dead ends. That is, until new evidence arose in August of 2020 that helped to bring some answers to Jennifer's case. As the DNA profile produced from the evidence left behind at Jennifer's crime scene had been entered into databases across the country, investigators hoped that it would one day help to identify Jennifer's killer. And that is exactly what happened when the CSPD was notified of a potential DNA lead. The person of interest was a man by the name of Ricky Severt. The twist? Ricky had actually been interviewed by detectives all the way back in November of 1999 as a part of the initial homicide investigation. Ricky had been working as an employee at Memorial Hospital as a part of the maintenance department. And... In November of 2001, he died. Ricky Severt had been killed in a traffic accident just east of Colorado Springs. Nineteen years after his death, familial DNA from his relatives was collected and used to determine that Ricky had been the person responsible for the murder of Jennifer Watkins. However, because Severt died... Jennifer's family may never have some of the conclusive answers they desperately want. By December of 2020, the district attorney's office officially closed out the investigation into the murder of Jennifer Watkins as, quote, exceptionally cleared death of offender. The next case we have in store for you today is one that is arguably more chilling than the first. It is the case of Baby April. Perhaps the most eerie and disturbing part of Baby April's case is the notion that her background is almost entirely unknown. In fact, the name Baby April was simply what investigators dubbed a small, full-term baby girl who had been found dead in Moline, Illinois. On April 11th, 1992, an unsuspecting man was walking his dog along the bank of the Mississippi River, just off of 17th Street in Moline, when he noticed something extremely unsettling. Just ahead of him, something was floating in the river, a black plastic garbage bag with a disturbingly familiar outline inside. After having called 911 and reporting the strange object, the reality of the scene became strikingly clear. The officers dispatched to the bank of the Mississippi River carefully opened the plastic bag to reveal the body of a deceased baby girl. As an investigation began, the coroner from Rock Island County identified the infant's cause of death to be suffocation 
asphyxiation, and hypothermia. While authorities attempted to contextualize the gruesome and disturbing murder case that they found themselves investigating, they chose to refer to the infant as Baby April to correspond with the month she was found as they had no other way to identify her. In the initial stages of Baby April's investigation, there were essentially no leads for officers to work off of. There were very little clues or information to even create a suspect profile for the baby's killer. Though there had been an unknown woman's DNA found at the scene of the crime, investigators were entirely unable to match the DNA to anyone in any database they had access to. In fact, no leads or arrests were made at all in 1992 regarding baby April's murder. Despite the lack of insight in the case, one thing was for certain. The answers investigators so desperately needed could be provided by baby April's family, as they were the most likely suspects. The only problem was that no one knew where baby April had come from, nor did they know who had abandoned her in such a gruesome way. So, baby April's shocking and upsetting case quickly went ice cold. For 22 years after baby April's body was initially discovered, every bit of insight into the case eventually dried up. That is, until an advance in genetic genealogy testing led to a massive break in the case. In 2014, a woman by the name of Cece Moore had been working in phenotype testing that offered help to curate easily identifiable family trees for those who were curious about their family's lineage. Eventually, her work evolved to specifically help adoptees and other people of unknown parentage find their long-lost family members. Throughout the time that Moore had been involved in such work, her team also decided to apply their tool to assist law enforcement in cases such as Baby April's. In doing so, investigators had actually been able to locate a variety of different DNA matches similar to Baby April's and were even able to narrow down the sample taken from Baby April's crime scene that perfectly matched with one immediate family. Officers were then able to track down a woman by the name of Angela Renee Sibke, who was a resident in Orion, Illinois, at the same time that baby April's body had been discovered. By December of 2014, Angela Renee Sibke was officially identified as the mother of baby April and was promptly issued an arrest warrant for the murder of the infant in 1992. Sipke is being held on a $1 million bond, an unusually high bond for a cold case, but likely due to the horrific nature of the crime. The third case we have is that of 19-year-old Deborah Tomlinson from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Deborah Tomlinson was a Grand Junction, Colorado local who had a love for her friends, family, and her horses. At 19, Deborah enrolled in college as she loved being a student and was noted to be outgoing and had big plans for her future. As a 19-year-old college student, Deborah managed to afford her own apartment near her Mesa College's campus. Living on her own, she was able to truly feel like the adult woman she was gradually becoming. 
not to mention the privacy of starting her own life, was exactly what Deborah had always wanted. Unfortunately, living alone wasn't always as safe as Deborah may have hoped. In fact, if Deborah hadn't been alone during the week of Christmas in 1975, perhaps someone would have been able to prevent the horrible tragedy that would occur. Or, at the least, someone would have been there as a witness to know the absolute truth of what happened. All that is certain about the fateful week is this. Grand Junction police officers received a call from a local landlord claiming that she had discovered something horrible about one of her tenants. When officers pressed her a bit farther, the landlord said that she had known the tenant, Deborah Tomlinson, a bit better than she knew most of her other tenants because Deborah was young and independent and she wanted to keep an eye on her. The landlord had noticed that she had not seen much of Deborah in a few days, which was unusual. In fact, she hadn't seen Deborah at all, despite one of the windows in her apartment being left ajar for days. At first, the landlord assumed that Deborah had gone to see her parents for the holiday and simply forgot to lock up properly. Wanting to avoid any possible damage to both the apartment and Deborah's belongings, the landlord decided to let herself into the unit to close up the window until Deborah's eventual return. What she stumbled upon in that apartment was something that would haunt her memories for long after. Lying partially clothed in a shallow porcelain bathtub, clearly deceased, was none other than 19-year-old Deborah Tomlinson. After the landlord's call, the police promptly arrived. Officers on the scene noticed that Deborah had been both bound before her death and strangled. It was also evident that Deborah had been the victim of assault. Officers noticed a deep wound on Deborah's forehead that led them to believe she had tried her best to put up a fight against her mystery attacker. Unfortunately for Deborah, it wasn't enough. Aside from the brutal state that her body was discovered in, Deborah's apartment appeared to be completely intact, exactly the way the landlord had remembered it. It was clear to investigators from the beginning that someone had managed to let themselves into Deborah's apartment and slip out as invisible as a ghost. There was also no clear indication of one distinct murder weapon in Deborah's case, making it difficult to work toward catching a killer who had managed to vanish into thin air. In fact, investigators had no major leads in Deborah's case at all. Many resources in the Grand Junction Police Department were allocated toward finding Deborah's killer, though they seemed to be in vain for the most part. There had been very little evidence left behind at the crime scene, and it appeared as though no one had seen anyone in the apartment complex that could have been Deborah's mysterious killer. Just like that, her case went completely cold a year after she died. Unlike the cases of Jennifer Watkins and Baby April, Deborah Tomlinson's murder went unsolved for 45 long years. Those who are familiar with the nature of murder investigations know that cold cases of such durations are often never solved, leaving the families of the victims to forever wonder what had happened. Fortunately, 
With the steady progression of DNA technology, many cases that are nearly a half century old are beginning to see the light of day once more. As was the case of Deborah Tomlinson. In 2020, police in Grand Junction decided to reopen the endlessly puzzling case that shook the whole town to its core. And something seemingly impossible happened. Working with a DNA company in Virginia, investigators were able to create a genetic data profile from the limited DNA evidence that had been left behind at the scene of Deborah's death. After running the DNA profile through a public genetic genealogy database, investigators were able to narrow down a possible list of people whose genetic makeup was similar to the person responsible for Deborah's death. From there, police were able to positively identify a man who would have been in Grand Junction at the time of Deborah Tomlinson's murder 45 years beforehand. The suspect police identified was a man by the name of Jimmy Dean Duncan. According to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, the DNA left behind at Deborah's apartment was a perfect match to the man who had been 26 years old at the time of the murder. Yet, during the initial investigation in 1975, Duncan hadn't even been a suspect. Unfortunately, Duncan died in 1987 from unknown causes, having never faced appropriate consequences for his actions on that fateful day in 1975. Police are now trying to find a motive for Deborah's death, but they did say that Duncan had a criminal record from a robbery and from a shooting in Florida. Deborah's father commented on the release of his daughter's killer's name, saying, It took a lot of weight off my mind. Still don't know why, but at least I know who. After so many decades of mystery, Deborah's murder case has finally been closed. The fourth case we are taking a look at today is that of five-year-old Siobhan McGinnis. Siobhan McGinnis was born and raised in Missoula, Montana, with her loving parents. Since her birth, Siobhan was the absolute apple of her parents' eye, and as their darling daughter, they would have done anything to make her happy. As a toddler, Siobhan often attended playdates with her various friends who lived on the same street as the McGinnis family. In fact, she would frequently spend time with one particular family friend on her block, whose house was just a few doors down from her parents' home. The houses were so close together that five-year-old Siobhan would simply walk herself to and from her friend's house. Siobhan almost never had any issues during her quick walk home. Almost. In the chill of a mid-February afternoon in 1974, Siobhan had set off for home from her friend's house in the same way she always had. With her jacket zipped up properly and her hands tucked into her favorite pair of gloves, Siobhan did her best not to linger in the frigid air too long. Though her home was in her sights for the entire duration of the walk, something peculiar happened that day. Siobhan never made it home. When Siobhan didn't arrive home at the designated hour, her parents felt a sinking feeling in the pit of their stomachs. Something had gone terribly, terribly wrong. 
The McGinnises quickly worked their way up and down the various streets in their neighborhood, hoping that Siobhan had simply wandered off or gotten distracted on her way home. When they couldn't locate Siobhan, the McGinnises called 911 and explained that their beautiful five-year-old daughter was missing. The police officers who were dispatched to Siobhan's neighborhood found almost no trace of the little girl, despite their search efforts. In fact, it seemed as though she had completely disappeared. The search for the young girl lasted for days before officers made any progress in her disappearance. But it wasn't the progress anyone was hoping for. Two days after her initial abduction, Siobhan's body was found in a snow-covered drain culvert just off of the I-90 freeway at the Tura exit. The McGinnis family was faced with the harsh reality of their daughter's disappearance. The fact that she was not only kidnapped, but she had also been brutally murdered. Siobhan had suffered trauma and a type of assault that we cannot dive into here on YouTube, and she sustained various stab wounds to her chest. Siobhan's discovery sent the town of Missoula into a state of shock, as the community was not used to dealing with crimes of such degrees of violence. The detectives assigned to Siobhan's case worked tirelessly to search for any leads to capture the person responsible for such a heinous act. Yet they always found themselves reaching more and more dead ends. There were two key witnesses who thought they may have seen something suspicious, and each gave a vague description of someone and a vehicle fleeing the scene. Yet investigators found virtually no suspects in Siobhan's case, leaving little room for a proper investigation. As quickly as she had gone missing, Siobhan's case went cold. In fact, Siobhan's case did not just go cold. It stayed that way for decades. For 46 painfully long years, Siobhan's family was forced to live with the knowledge that their darling daughter had been brutally murdered, and justice was far from being served. Then, in October of 2020, the Missoula County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Squad officially announced that they had managed to uncover the truth behind Siobhan's death. Evidence that had originally been collected from the crime scene in 1974 had been paired with current advances in DNA technology to positively identify the man behind the murder of Siobhan McGinnis. Richard William Davis was named as the individual responsible. Davis had been 32 when he abducted, mistreated, and subsequently murdered five-year-old Siobhan in the mid-1970s. Authorities working on Siobhan's long-term investigation noted that they were not sure why Davis had even been in Missoula at the time, and he seemed to have been passing through the area. Multiple witnesses were able to attest to seeing Davis's car around the town during the time of Siobhan's kidnapping, and his DNA was a perfect match for the DNA collected from the crime scene the day Siobhan was found. Though the case was eventually solved, Richard Davis avoided ever facing any consequences for his crime, as he died in 2012 at the age of 70. Investigators believe that Davis wasn't connected to any other crimes during his life, and his obituary, written by his family, 
describes him as a born-again Christian. Perhaps the only notion of closure that the McGinnis family received from discovering the truth of their daughter's death is that Richard Davis is now incapable of hurting another family in the same way. Missoula is currently creating a permanent memorial to Siobhan in the form of a sculpture as a living remembrance to the little girl taken too soon. Finally, the last case we have for you today is Orange County, California's oldest cold case. In 1968, the body of an unknown woman wearing a floral print blouse, purple pants, loafers, and a costume ring with a large blue stone set in a silver band was found in a drainage ditch near Newland Street in Yorktown Avenue in Huntington Beach, California. Three young boys accidentally discovered the troubling crime scene as they wandered closer to what they realized was, in fact, a human body. They quickly called the police, who were then dispatched to the scene of a crime that would come to haunt Orange County for decades. The woman's body had no form of identification at all. In fact, it appeared as though the woman had been thoroughly cleaned and left purposefully unidentifiable. But one thing was for certain. The woman had not come to the drainage ditch on her own accord. She had been beaten, assaulted, and her throat cut. Yet very little evidence was actually collected from the scene, as almost none had been left behind. The unknown woman's killer had been very thorough, but there was always room for error. Near the body were the slightest remains of a cigarette butt that had been carelessly discarded. As it turned out, the DNA from the cigarette matched the DNA swabbed from the assault kit used to pick up traces left on the mystery woman. The woman was estimated to have been somewhere in her mid-twenties at the time of her death. Despite multiple attempts at trying to find the family of the woman, investigators on her case constantly came up empty-handed. This woman, it had seemed, was unknown to everyone, and it didn't look as though anyone had even reported her missing. Just like that, the search for her identity went virtually nowhere. Unfortunately, so did the search for her killer. That is, until over five decades later. Orange County Sheriff's Department reopened the Jane Doe's case and uncovered some of the long-sought-after answers. Finally, after years of searching, Orange County investigators were able to find a DNA match from the profile produced from the samples collected off of the woman's body. And, of course, from the forgotten cigarette butt. Through use of investigative genetic genealogy, police were able to map out the possible family tree of the murderer. More so than that, they were able to narrow down the killer to one man in particular, a man by the name of Johnny Crisco. Crisco's identity came to light in 2019, allowing for investigators to come one step closer to fully understanding what had happened to the mystery woman all those years before. However, once more, investigators found themselves at a loss for answers when they learned that Crisco had died of cancer in 2015, just four years before the world learned of his heinous endeavors in Southern California. 
Crisco hadn't been a suspect at the time of the murder, but it is reported that he had been discharged from the army after only three years when a psychological exam determined he had a pattern of being quick to anger, easy to feel unjustly treated, chronically resentful, immature, and impulsive. Even though authorities were successful in finding out who had been responsible for Orange County's longest unsolved homicide, they were disappointed that the killer had narrowly evaded facing the consequences of his actions in life. More so than that, they knew that their investigation could not end until they were able to identify the victim. Having once again utilized the technology associated with investigative genetic genealogy, Huntington Beach police officers were able to finally name the woman who had been unknown for so long. Her name was Anita Louise Pateau, and she had been a long way from home when she was found dead in Southern California. Anita Louise Pateau was originally from Maine, where her parents, seven siblings, and extended family lived their entire lives. In early 1968, she had sent a letter to her family saying that she had found work as a waitress in California and was living with her friends 11 months before she died. In the letter, she said she would return home that year, but they never heard from her again. When investigators were finally able to reach out to Anita's remaining family members in late 2020, it became clear that Anita's siblings never gave up looking for their long-lost sister. Lori Querian, Anita's 60-year-old niece, said, It is a big weight lifted off. She's not missing anymore. She is close to us now. We have a sense of peace that comes with that. Cold cases are often chilling and frequently disheartening to those associated with the victims of such brutal crimes as the ones we have discussed today. However, it is not entirely impossible to uncover the truth in such instances. Even decades later, 